This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Jessica is out this week, so it's just me, but I have an interview you're going to really, really like. And if you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash Friendly Atheist Podcast. Kristen Cobus Dumay is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. I wanted to chat with her because all of those interests are right up our alley on this podcast, and a book she released last year has become wildly successful for maybe all the wrong reasons. And I mean that in the best possible way, because it really articulates what we've all witnessed over the past several years. It's a New York Times bestseller called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It attempts to explain why white evangelicals overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump, despite all the non-Trumpy values they claimed to hold dear before he came along, by looking at the history of evangelical culture. I want to read you just one passage so you get a sense of this book. By the time Trump arrived proclaiming himself their savior, conservative white evangelicals had already traded a faith that privileges humility and elevates the least of these for one that derides gentleness as the province of wusses. Rather than turning the other cheek, They'd resolve to defend their faith and their nation, secure in the knowledge that the ends justified the means. Having replaced the Jesus of the Gospels with the vengeful warrior Christ, it's no wonder many came to think of Trump in the same way. In 2016, many observers were stunned at evangelicals' apparent betrayal of their own values. In reality, evangelicals did not cast their vote despite their beliefs, but because of them. It's a fantastic book, and in this conversation, we talked about whether white evangelicals corrupted their faith or had their faith exposed for what it really was, whether the religion is a force for good, her advice to pastors looking to fix toxic masculinity, skinny jeans, and so much more. Kristen, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, For the people who haven't read your book or haven't aren't familiar with your work. Can you give us a brief synopsis of why you wanted to write this particular book? Yeah, essentially, Jesus and John Wayne is a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism, and it it traces this through the last half century or so of American history. And I wanted to write the book because more than 15 years ago, I began to explore this connection. And uh, I I was drawn to the topic through my students. I teach at a Christian university, and some students in my class, after I'd lectured on Teddy Roosevelt to show them how masculinity worked in history, how it was linked to race and to empire, and uh, in some cases to violence. Uh, They came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you have to read. And it was a best-selling Christian book at the time. John Eldridge's Wild at Heart uh, went on to sell millions of copies. And uh, and when I opened the book, I I saw what they were talking about. It was a very militant conception of quote-unquote Christian manhood. And I had an inkling that it was, this was the early 2000s. 
2000s, right around the time of the Iraq war, I had an inkling that it was maybe functioning in a similar way as what I just taught them about Teddy Roosevelt's uh, era. And um, then I set the book aside, (laughs) the project, uh, for a long time, um, in part because I I wasn't quite able to tease out how mainstream this was and how fringe, because what I was uncovering in my research seemed really extremist. Uh, And I had other projects going on. And it it actually wasn't until the days after the Access Hollywood tape released in 2016 that I realized that the language I was hearing so many white evangelicals use to support Donald Trump, to defend their support for Donald Trump, was strikingly similar to the rhetoric that I had encountered, you know, years before uh, around these conversations of what does it mean to be a Christian man? It was a warrior masculinity, do what needs to be done. uh, you know, just like Donald Trump, um, they were saying, was their ultimate fighting champion. And it was then that I knew that there was a longer history here. And I knew when I was hearing pundits say that this was somehow support for Trump was a betrayal of evangelical values, that wasn't getting the story right. So the interesting thing to me that you said there is you were hesitant to write it because you thought at first it might be too fringy until you realize, no, this is kind of front and center. So the subtitle of your book is, you know, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And I know a thought that I've had a lot is, did they corrupt the faith (laughs) or did guys like Donald Trump? expose the faith for what a lot of critics, myself included, um, have argued that it always has been. And I mean, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah. No, that line I gave a lot of thought to. Uh, The subtitle was really hard to come up with. It took us months. And uh, part of the problem was this is a trade book. And I've always considered it my book on white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And at some point in the process, uh, we were told that both masculinity and militarism were too long. We couldn't use them. And so we had to get creative. It really came down to... uh, what, why does this book matter and for whom? And that's how I ended up. I want to be very clear. Corrupted of Faith is not a historical claim. I'm upfront about that. And that's why I was, I was nervous about making there. There's no, you can't make that claim historically speaking for the reasons that you suggest. But I was thinking, who needs this book? I think it's important for evangelicals themselves. And in that part, I'm speaking to them on their own terms. These are quote unquote Bible believing Christians. And yet, what I show is that they are willing to toss aside whole sections of the Christian scriptures, teachings of Jesus, to love your neighbor, to turn the other cheek, the Beatitudes, the fruit of the Spirit, right? They're just very comfortable. They're, they're uh, you know, reworking the historical doctrine of the Trinity in order to bolster their, their patriarchal beliefs. Um, so that part is saying, on your own terms here, take a close look. And then the other part of the subtitle, Fractured or na- a Nation, it, it matters for all of us, not just evangelicals. Um, are one of the complaints, and I do want to get into some of the complaints I've seen, but one of the complaints I've heard is that, you know, you, by focusing on guys who are very masculine and patriarchal, um, are you cherry picking people like Mark Driscoll, uh, the, the very alpha male type of figures, or do guys like him, um, rep- like, do they fairly represent this strain of conservative Christianity? Because, Obviously, those alpha male types are in every religious tradition and every non-religious tradition. They exist. So is a guy like that or any number of them that you mention, how representative are they of this brand of conservative evangelical Christianity? 
Yeah, well, first, let me say that my original draft of this manuscript was 60,000 words longer. Uh, so there's, <laughs> there's, if there's cherry picking, there are a lot of cherries to pick. Um, and, and then I, I mean, this is a question that I ask explicitly through this book. Uh, and, and I do so, you know, in early on with uh, figures like Bill Gothard and uh, uh, James Dobson. I do it later with, with people like Driscoll. I mean, yes, Driscoll is, um, I mean, he's not the norm. And yet he was incredibly popular, making all of the, you know, most influential evangelical lists. So what I tried to do is look at evangelicalism as a system of, uh, of networks, alliances, and, and looking at affinities. And so you take somebody like Driscoll or somebody like Doug Wilson and other, you know, absolutely extremists. I say that over and over again. Like he would not identify as mainstream evangelical. He'd be offended at the thought. And yet we see him platformed by people like John. Piper. We see him in the pages of Christianity Today. That's what I'm getting at. Uh, in my chapter on uh, James Dobson, who I would suggest, uh, I mean, if you're if you're telling a, the history of the last half century of American evangelicalism, uh, James Dobson has to be at or near the center. And then I show how uh, I pair him with Bill Gothard, who also just hands down extreme fringe. And yet, he influenced millions of people directly. And then when I when I when I show his ideas of hierarchy, of patriarchal authority, of um, his kind of foundations, his hierarchical understanding of how society works and how it ought to work, and then you set it alongside the teachings of uh, an irrefutably mainstream figure like James Dobson. You see, not a lot separates these two. And that's really what I'm trying to tease out. So where are the affinities? Who's giving cover to whom? And, you know, I say in the book that essentially this militant masculinity is a dominant strain. And, and I, I thought very carefully about that. It's not the only evangelicalism. Not at all. But you are going to bump up against this in evangelical institutions, this, this more militant, you know, conservative, patriarchal in organizations. And then the question is, you know, what's going to win out? So this isn't all evangelicals, but it is a dominant strand. Is there something strange about the fact that um, I've... I'm making this question up so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there was an article in Christianity Today or maybe the New York Times that basically said a lot of white evangelical pastors freely admit that a large percentage of their churches include the MAGA types, which they fully admit contradicts the teaching of Jesus, but they're almost too afraid to address it or they think by not addressing it and staying apolitical, that's the best move for them as opposed to going in the other direction and then they get known as some political preacher. Like, let me get to the question I really want to ask, which is like, how much blame should we p place on moderate Christians or uh, magazines like Christianity Today for platforming those names and for not calling out the bad behavior? Because, I mean, believe me, I've heard it from atheists plenty of times who want to condemn moderate religious views for not condemning the extremists. But I, I don't know if that's the same argument to make in, in this part of the world, in the evangelical yeah. world. Yeah, so I, I push back uh, against those who want to stu 
to to starkly separate the you know the fringe, the more extremist views from the more mainstream, uh, because uh, you know there there has been a lot of talking about you know kind of the hijacking of evangelicalism by conservative politics or by this you know MAGA, um, and that's really not what what history shows us. And there has been you know the evangelicals were building the moral majority from the ground up. They were shaping Republican politics. They were uh, you know you look at relationship with Fox News or with talk radio and you know, they were right there at the at, you know ground level uh, they were the audience and they they helped shape all of this so this is not a hijacking I want to make that very clear and then um, there's also not we can't draw a super stark uh, distinction between kind of this popular or populist evangelicalism and uh, pastors in some cases yeah and these are yes these are the pastors who are going to be interviewed in these these uh, think pieces and and these are the ones who when they do end up speaking out end up losing their pulpits or they feel like their hands are tied they are they are conflicted there are also many pastors in evangelical pulpits who are fully immersed in this world and they are consuming this popular culture and they are contributing to it and and that's where i think we need to look at not just a, an institution like christianity today which is kind of flagship respectable elite evangelicalism we have to look at something like the Gospel Coalition. We have to look at uh, at John Piper's Desiring God. We have to look in these spaces as well, and then see how they have defined Christianity, how they have defined orthodoxy, how they have centered things like a pretty strict patriarchy uh, at the center of defi- their definitions of orthodoxy. And then you can see how they did start to decide who is with us and who is against us. And that's where I think that we really need to focus our attention. And then these these lines really do get blurred, and we can start talking, I think, in in more honest ways about uh, complicity here. It's interesting, though. Every time I see a Franklin Graham Facebook post that makes me cringe or something, the, the thing that's even scarier than that is the number of times it's been shared at that point. Um, Incredibly popular <laughs> figure, right? And, and yeah. then... Do you have some of these, you know, more respectable types, if you will, who for a long time have wanted to say, yeah, that's not real evangelicalism, right? That's no, that's not really who we are. And that's one thing that my book does is it pushes against that, you know, desire to separate out the true evangelicals who are the more respectable, moderate ones who happen to also be the ones who up until now have, have largely been writing the histories of evangelicalism have been the ones who have been defining who is a real evangelical. And that's what this book does is uh, it, 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 it says, no, we have to, we have to take evangelicals for who they are, how people are self-identifying as evangelical. And then it, it is a more problematic story. How much of that is the no true Scotsman? Like, I don't like Mark Driscoll. He's a, he's not really an evangelical. He's not really a Christian. I mean, what at this point, what is the definition? I mean, I know there's an academic definition of evangelicalism and the, mm-hmm. the quadrilateral and whatnot, but at this yeah. point, I mean, who really gets to define who they are? I mean, because if there's an academic definition that centers around Jesus and the crucifixion, mm-hmm. but in practice, if you ask outside the evangelical bubble, what does evangelical Christianity stand for? You're going to get a very different definition at this point. I mean, I, I guess, what would your definition be of what an evangelical yeah. is? And I mean, is there a discrepancy between that definition and how you think everyone else sees it? 
Yeah. I mean, well, not everyone else. I I do in this book push back against evangelicals, uh, evangelical leaders, let me say, who insist on defining evangelicalism according to theological beliefs, this quadrilateral that you're referring to, which basically means a four-part definition or list of distinctives. So, biblicism, the authority of the scriptures, crucicentrism, the centrality of of Christ, Christ's atonement, conversionism, this born-again experience, and activism or evangelism. So, acting out of these beliefs. That's what historians have used. That's what you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals. They'll say, this is what it is to be an evangelical. There's a lot of problems with that. (laughs) I'll just name a few. Uh, I mean, if you um, look at surveys that evangelicals themselves do, you'll see incredibly high levels of theological illiteracy among self-professed church-attending evangelicals. Right there, I say, so is theology really central? Uh, And then you can bring race into this. The vast majority of Black Protestants in the United States can check off those boxes. The vast majority of those do not identify as evangelical because they know there's a whole lot more to being evangelical evangelical than just checking off a rubric. And and that's where, for me as a cultural historian, I pay attention. So, what is evangelicalism? And it's, it's, it's not that theology doesn't enter into the conversation at all, but it, it, I don't make it primary. Um, and instead, I look, at, I look at evangelicalism as a historical and cultural movement. And that's where race comes to the fore. It is predominantly, uh, as it has came, come to take shape, it is a white religious movement. And it is, um, uh, it, again, I, I see it as, as a consumer culture as much as anything else. So, are you an evangelical or not? Uh, well, I don't, have you shopped at Christian bookstores in your life? Do you read Christian publishing? Do you listen to Christian radio? Do you listen to Christian music? Now, for for many of your listeners, uh, you know this might not immediately resonate. For anybody who has spent any time in an evangelical community, immediately you're going to start finding all these points of connection. We know the same artists. We know the same, we've read the same books. We've done the same book studies. And this is a multi-billion like, dollar industry. There's so much money here. And it is it is a subculture. And it's largely invisible to people outside of that world. But to people inside, many people have been wholly immersed in it. So for me, I'm more interested in um, not are you a real or a fake evangelical? Um, and who gets to define that? Um, I'm interested in how immersed have you been in this evangelical consumer culture? The system of networks, alliances, right, distribution networks, and so on. How shaped have you been? And then let's take that popular culture very seriously and see what sorts of values are being transmitted, what ideas are allowed and not, how are the boundaries defined within that consumer culture? I'm wondering, as you've been making this case through your book, through lectures, things like that, have you, I would assume a lot of your students, even at Calvin uh, University, are pretty receptive to those ideas. I'm I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong. I wonder if they are more or less receptive to it than some of your academic colleagues who might be older. I mean, is there a difference in how people have taken your ideas here? 
Yeah, I would say it's not so much an age difference as, uh, in fact, in this case, the younger generation would have slightly less of a an exposure to this subculture because I think it's been breaking down just a little bit with, you know, social media and things like Netflix. And so we, we have more access, you know, it, it, you have to be pretty isolated in, in a really conservative corner of this world, like homeschool culture. So to stay kind of, you know, separate, whereas in the 1990s and early 2000s, it was a lot easier to, to pretty much just exist in this world if you wanted to or if your parents wanted you to. Uh, so, so I think that's changed. But yeah, I think that historians uh, who have been trained in intellectual and religious history, many of whom may have gone to seminary, who identify as you know the more respectable uh, intellectual evangelicals, um, that's where I got some pushback. I think more pushback early on. Um, whereas with popular ordinary evangelical, just ordinary evangelicals, right? Just not scholars, not leaders, just ordinary They go to folk. church, they believe. They go to Bible study. Those are the people who are the book's biggest fans. And I, I have to admit, I was not expecting that when I wrote this book. I kind of thought it was, you know, it, evangelicals, uh, I thought some would read it. Uh, I did not realize that they would be the book's biggest fans, biggest proselytizers. I get, I mean, since the book has come out, I've I've received well over a thousand messages from readers, probably close to 2,000 now. It's, I can't keep up. I can't answer them all. Almost all of them say some version of, this is the story of my life, and thank you for helping me to see. Um, I One of the criticisms I wonder, and I'm sh- this is like conservative reflex, I think, the argument is by writing a book like this, you are suggesting white evangelicals are uniquely bad when it comes to toxic masculinity and that problem. (laughs) But that's really just a problem with American culture at large, or maybe all humanity. How much of this is unique to American evangelicalism? And how do you separate what's going on in that subculture versus the broader culture? Oh, it's not unique. Um, although the the shape it takes is somewhat unique, I would say that much. <laughs> what they do with it uh, can be, I don't know if unique is quite the right word, but distinctive. And so one of the, the points that I try to make through the book, and this is getting to the title, Jesus and John Wayne, is the interplay between conservative, secular conservatism and conservative evangelicalism, right? And that's this figure of John Wayne, or even when I was reading these early books, um, you know, 15 some years ago on Christian manhood, what I saw immediately was there wasn't a lot of um, scriptural interpretation in these books. There weren't even a lot of Bible verses in these books. Instead, authors were looking to Hollywood heroes, to people like Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart as their model of Christian manhood. They were looking also at mythical— Mark Driscoll. <laughs> right, right. Mark Driscoll loved, loved, loved uh, William Wallace. Not, uh-huh. not the real William Wallace, mind you, but Mel Gibson's William Wallace. Uh-huh. Right? This was— in, in Yes, John Wayne was popping up and Teddy Roosevelt and mythical warriors and heroes and soldiers and General Patton and MacArthur and sometimes General Lee and, you know, Confederate heroes. And so, yes, this was this was a pattern that I saw. And in this too, you know, for evangelicals who have largely defined themselves in opposition to, quote unquote, secularism, right, to show them just how much of their, quote unquote, biblical or you know, Christian teachings were reflecting these broader cultural allegiances. And in the case of this masculinity, you know, Cold War models of masculinity and um, post-civil rights, post-feminism, a kind of reactionary uh, white masculinity that um, they then, 
essentially baptized and combined with some theological teachings created this um, this tradition of Christian manhood, which this is my critique <laughs> would you know uh, wouldn't necessarily uh, align with the teachings of Christ as have historically been interpreted um, by most Christians and. Um, in in turn, then, haven't just kind of warped Christian masculinity, but have fundamentally warped some pretty basic teachings of Christianity itself. Um, I I wonder because it came out recently what you made of the Jerry Falwell Jr. comeback tour uh, that appeared in Vanity Fair. Did that destroy? I mean, because he's been out of the spotlight for a while, but he very much tried to exemplify that alpha male type of. Uh, caricature on campus at Liberty. Um, I mean, what were your thoughts to him trying to explain that he was almost playing a role? It wasn't really about religion for him as much as it was building up Liberty. Yeah. Uh, so this is a terrible confession here. I have not yet read the vanity. I mean, obviously I've read all about it. I've seen it right. on my feed and, and I thought, do I have to, I know I have, do I really have to, I've read, I have read more about Jerry Falwell and a lot about Jerry Falwell, different parts sure. of Jerry Falwell that I would ever want to. So I did, I did kind of think I'll get back to that. So, so I'm That's okay. hand here. I, I, I know the gist of it. I know the gist of it, but, um, you know, I think that it, it's just, it's revealing. It's not surprising. What what needs to be interrogated more isn't, isn't Jerry Falwell. It is evangelicals' uh, love of figures like Jerry Falwell. Um, you know, and now he, he's crossed so many lines that he's maybe not the best example anymore. He is a, a pretty extreme example. Uh, but evangelical willingness to forgive all sorts of sins of certain people of powerful white conservative men uh, and and yet to be rather ruthless in uh, in kind of holding to judgment uh, many other folks so I think that's that's certainly a pattern that I explored in in my book um, and you know the the treatment of Jerry Falwell jr would fit with that up to a point but he's again crossed so many lines that it's it's hard to draw too many broader conclusions about him at this point. Um, this is a point I've tried to make in the past, which is George W. Bush was very much um, he wore his religion on his sleeve, kind of the height of conservative Christianity at one point. But I feel like with Barack Obama and so many other broader trends, there was such a backlash to that merging of conservative Christianity and politics. And I wonder because I haven't seen it yet, but. Trump was and the merging of him with conservative Christianity seems so much bigger, so much more harmful, in my opinion. Do you see a bigger backlash coming in the future or have, have we not seen that yet? And like, what does that mean for Christianity? I mean, part of me hopes that so many younger Christians especially would see how bad both of those groups were, especially when together, that they would want to fight back against it. And we've seen surveys showing a move away from organized religious labels. Mm -hmm. But I don't know historically if you're seeing a trend or a bigger backlash down the road coming or if this is I mean, I hate to use this phrase, but like the new normal for what that world is. 
Uh, so, so hard to predict the future. Uh, I say that as a historian who, you know, we're, we're constantly surprised by what's right around the corner. It's, it's, it's hard to see. Um, but let me say a few things about what I'm kind of looking at to figure things out. Um, uh, George W. Bush is an interesting case because he came in under compassionate conservatism and then 9-11 happened and then he comes out as the crusader, right? Remember that? And, mm-hmm. and then very quickly is told, no, 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 you can't say that. That's problematic here. And then he he self-corrected some, but evangelicals still, you know, took that and ran with it, this, uh, this kind of crusade. And that's where we have this alarming trend of Islamophobia and uh, which you know, hasn't really um, disappeared to this day, but um, and then the the, the militarism, um, preemptive war, and and so on, uh, that takes hold. But George W. Bush's fate is a little different, and and it fits with the patterns that we've seen before, up until Trump. And that is when a Republican and when a conservative Christian, even is in the case of Bush, is in the White House, it becomes hard for conservative evangelicals to raise money, uh, to uh, kind of uh, rally the troops, to, you see a lot of their organizations go bankrupt during, you know, the Reagan years, during, you you kind of see this, and then Clinton comes in and yes, we have the opposition, right? Right. This this embattlement that works really well to raise money and to mobilize voters. Um, Over the course of Bush's presidency, we see as things aren't going that well in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, we see that um, uh, he doesn't look like the warrior president. He, he doesn't look like the cowboy president we had thought he was going to be. And and yeah, I don't know about this guy so much. And and so we see the same kind of attrition happening. Um, Barack Obama was a kind of godsend there. <laughs> Not only is he an African American president, he's a Democrat. He's a you know, quote unquote liberal. And and then we have also the sea change in LGBTQ rights. And all of a sudden, there, aha. And that's not just a um, a kind of organic response, a natural response. This is uh, evangelical leaders had seen those um, uh, that polling data. They had seen that young evangelicals, young white evangelicals in particular, were defecting. They voted for Obama in 2008. Not a lot of them, but enough of them to cause great concern. So they doubled down and absolutely opposed him at every turn. And it was their goal to like pull those those young uh, evangelicals back into the fold. Then you had um, the Obergefell decision, threats to you know religious liberty as they perceived it, and it just totally played into their hands. Then we get Trump, right? That's, we can see this kind of backlash there against Obama, very obviously. But what Trump did, which is different than any Republican before, is he was able to maintain this sense of peril, of threat, of urgency every single day, even though he their great protector was in the White House and had right. all of this power. We he saw gets to how perpetuate he perpetuate victimhood even while he's in power. Absolutely. And so I feel like that has changed the equation so much so that I don't know what comes next. I don't know what's around the corner. If you're like me, you spend way too much time thinking about what to eat for dinner and not nearly enough time preparing for podcasts or writing blog posts. But HelloFresh can fix that problem, even if you're a vegetarian like me. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm-fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get convenience and quality. 
no grocery store, no lines, no excess food that sits in your fridge for weeks on end, and there's plenty of room to customize your plans as needed when it comes to delivery day, meal sizes, or food preferences. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items each week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, and gourmet options. It's everything from hibachi sweet soy bavette steak and shrimp to white cheddar wonder burgers. Go to hellofresh.com slash friendly atheist 16 and use code friendly atheist 16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. It seems like Roe v. Wade is on the verge of being officially overturned. I mean, strategically speaking for evangelicals here, is that a good or bad thing for them? Because like you just said, it's it's a lot easier to raise money and to call yourself a victim when it's the law and say, we're trying to overturn it. Give us money to do it. And even though their end goal is we want to overturn that law, let's say the Supreme Court does exactly what they've been planning on them doing for a long time. What happens on that issue? Do they just move on to let's fight trans people now or as their main goal? Or do they I mean, is that strategically, is that a good or bad thing for them? I'm sure they'll celebrate, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, really good question. Um, first of all, right. Roe v. Wade would just, um, if it gets overturned, it, it moves this to the states. So then we have right. 50 times the the battles. Uh, and, and so it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, you know, a few years back, I might have thought, yeah, that would that would take a lot of um, of uh, kind of momentum away from the religious right. I don't think that's the case at all anymore. And in fact, there's a plenty of survey data that suggests that for all of the attention that abortion gets as this mobilizing political issue, survey data doesn't really bear that out. It's surprising that if you ask evangelicals to rank, you know, the order of significance of a number of issues, abortion comes in somewhere behind foreign policy in the economy. Uh, and, and at the same time, as somebody who, who moves in these spaces, that doesn't quite ring true to me either. Because abortion still, for so many people will tell me it is the most important thing. I think it is an important issue primarily because it gives a kind of moral veneer to the entire package. But it is just one facet of the, uh, the of evangelical politics, um, right? They're, they're, they have as strong feelings, if not stronger feelings, on a whole range of issues from immigration, border walls, law enforcement, Black Lives Matter. I mean, you can just, you know, tax policy, all of these things. And so, at this point, sure, you could remove abortion, um, you know, wave a magic wand as if it had never happened, and I don't see many evangelicals at all shifting. Um, they're certainly not their their party affiliation. Plus, there's going to be this gratitude, like you finally did it. Thank you, Republican mm-hmm. Party. Um, and 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 still, even if you remove abortion entirely, um, there's this whole other. Uh, constellation of issues that they continue to hold fast to. And that's why, too, when you look at evangelicals and their support for Trump, um, there was a very tight um, match when it came to policy uh, agreement as well. This wasn't just, you know, there wasn't a lot of holding our noses. One of the critics, I wanted to know if you had a response to I don't know if you read like the, all the reviews of the book. I mean, I would if I were in your position because I'm genuinely I read curious. I a lot, but there, there's a lot out there. <laughs> I'm so sure. Go for it. 
Well, yeah. So one person said you're blaming toxic masculinity for like this white evangelical preference for Trump, or at least you're attributing that as a large reason they they like Trump, not their theological or ethical beliefs, which means they said you're not grappling with the idea that Trump ran as a pro-life candidate and he lived up to his campaign promises Uh on that score. I'm wondering Uh if you have a response to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I'd go back and say, um, you know, if if white evangelicals hadn't supported Donald Trump already in 2015 and certainly early 2016, he would not have secured the nomination. So if you go back in real time, we see this um, grassroots support for Donald Trump manifesting already in August of 2015 when no evangelical leaders were supporting him. It wasn't until January of 2016 that we have Falwell Jr. and Robert mm-hmm. Jeffress coming out and, and endorsing Trump, endorsing slash essentially endorsing. endorsing. Right, right. Um, And then it took months for other evangelical leaders to fall in line. But you saw this popular support among white evangelicals drawn to him. And and you saw this debate. um, And and yes, uh, you can point to some early, um, you know, primary data and say that still the the, uh, majority of evangelicals preferred other candidates. um, But we're moving more towards plurality. And, and, you know, Donald Trump was showing strong. um, But at Early on, there was a lot of uncertainty about Trump. Who was this guy? What were his views on abortion? Wasn't he recently a Democrat? Who was this guy? As he made himself known, particularly on the debate platform against other Republican primary opponents, we saw evangelicals starting to embrace him again, not top down. Uh, They still preferred Rubio or Cruz, um, but from the bottom up increasingly. um, And so, so that's what I would point to. And then this idea of, um, Hey, he was the best candidate, right? Uh, What choice did we have? He was up against Hillary Clinton. Okay. Even if we, if we start there, uh, then um, in this, you know, holding our noses idea, I watched extremely closely after the election, the weeks, the months, and then the years, I saw zero buyer's remorse. Uh, (laughs) And I saw zero uh, attempts to say, okay, thanks, you know, right, we we dodged the Hillary Clinton bullet. Now we have Donald Trump. Let's temper him. Let's, you know, let's, let's, let's critique this. Like the only voices who were critiquing him from the evangelical fold were the never Trumpers who had opposed him from the Mm -hmm. beginning. So again, I just look at that. And then, and then you have to ask, how long can you maintain that this is a betrayal of evangelical values until we have to start to ask, wait a minute, what what are those values? When we talk family values, uh, what are we really talking about here? And that's when we see, you know, in the book, I, I make some pretty strong claims there that fundamentally it's about sex and power, and it's about white patriarchal power. And if you if you agree with that, then we're not talking about betrayal anymore. We're talking about some consistency that helps explain this enduring loyalty. Um, I don't know if this is a fair question, but let's put you on the spot. I mean, at this point, because you travel in these circles, you are in these circles. I mean, is evangelical Christianity a force for good? And you only get a yes or no answer. That's <laughs> what, yeah, there's no nuance there. But yeah, I mean, at this point, I mean, obviously evangelicals think they're a force for good. They're, mm-hmm. They have a moral standard that they 
claim that they're promoting. But your whole point of the book and a lot of things you're saying is the harm that they have caused and the separation it is from what Jesus taught. Like, yeah, so how do you answer that? Are they a force for good? So a lot of people, um, critics want me to say, um, okay, sure, sure, sure. There's some bad stuff here. Can't argue. It's all, you know, we've got the footnotes, we've got the sources, but didn't these guys do some good things too? Come on, right. you know, let, how about the good things that these these guys did? And plus, they, sh- they shared the gospel, right? And isn't that what really matters? And, and sure, we could, other books have been written. There are plenty of books that are highlighting, you know, the nicer side of evangelicalism. For me, it's not one or the other, and this is really important. It is both. And and so how do we understand evangelicals who do give a lot to charity, evangelicals who are showing up at our soup kitchens, evangelicals who, if they're your neighbor, they're genuinely nice people to you, right? Hopefully. (laughs) Um, Right. right. Chances are, hopefully. Um, Right. All of this stuff, this kinder, gentler version of evangelicalism, it exists alongside this this harsher, authoritarian, patriarchal evangelicalism. The two go hand in hand. We've got Mike Pence serving the interests of Donald Trump. That is how this works, right? And so, sure, let's talk about the nice stuff that they're doing, and then let's ask the follow-up question, and how can they also be doing this? And and then what we're going to see is some of this good stuff does end up providing a moral cover for some of the deeply harmful things that they are doing to their neighbors, to their fellow Americans, and frankly, as, as I researched this book, I was not expecting when I started the, started this project, but certainly by the time I was halfway through, I realized just how authoritarian many of these teachings are. And I started to um, be increasingly concerned about the fate of American democracy. And I think that's where I would, um, it sounds kind of extreme, not anymore. It doesn't sound extreme. As I was writing, I thought, is this is this really where this is going? What do I do with this? Uh, and so, yes, this kinder, gentler Christianity um, is intertwined with this authoritarianism, and and that's the harm in it. And that's why it is so popular, and that is why it is so hard to combat. Are you familiar with all the YouTubers and TikTokers, like especially a lot of young women, young evangelical couples who promote the very strain of patriarchal conservative Christianity? I'm so curious if you watch those videos, what your thoughts are when you see them. Like, oh, the, the subject and, and, of so much... Uh, hate watching <laughs> and, and, and the yeah the stay pure and then have the best sex ever on your wedding night yeah, yeah, and exactly. uh yeah the tiktok so so maybe my next book is on uh a, it's a cultural history of white christian womanhood looking at some oh, of these faces. <laughs> it's gonna cover some of this it's yeah it's called live laugh love that should give you a sense um so yes. unfortunately yes it is my job to do this although i've got a couple of amazing research assistants who uh-huh. are younger than i am and i'm i'm handing this to them they're giving me some of the highlights but yeah uh, that's a you need links you let me know (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) um so okay let's suppose a a evangelical pastor comes up to you megachurch pastor says i agree with your premise here i do i hate the fact that my religion has been taken over by what i think are these extremists who share the same faith i do 
what advice do you give them at this point? This isn't a hypothetical. I get asked yeah. this every week. Um, <laughs> that makes me feel good. That's yeah, nice. No, right? <laughs> so that's one thing that this book has has opened up to me, uh, the reception of this book among evangelicals themselves, including conservative white evangelical men, including complementarian men, right, who hold to this a, a kind of patriarchy. But when they read this book, they say, oh, not right. It, it it did go too far. This is not biblical. This is there's all these cultural layers, and we can see now what you know. And so they're actually using this book to go back to the scriptures and say, you know, what what are the limits here? What 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 is biblical? Um, you know, what are biblical gender roles and stuff? So there's a lot of that, um, and I, I do I do think that's that's worth pointing out. But when pastors come to me. Um, Disclaimer, I'm a historian, so I'm really good at looking at what has happened and then <laughs> explaining it and the repercussions and how to understand it. Um, I'm now in an unusual place where I get asked this question a lot. What should we be doing instead? <laughs> at first, I wanted to say, I don't know. I mean, good luck with that, right? That's not really my thing. Um, I can just tell you what has happened. But I realized that, hey, if I'm going to be asked, and these are people who have a lot of power, I better come up with some answers. Um, so what I try to do is, is uh, you know, have them think about um, their own um, participation in this to see how, you know, even though they are now seeing um, how bad things are, seeing the dangers in some of the ideas that they um, have been immersed in, you know, I want them to be, to take a careful look at the ways in which they have um, uh, promoted these ideas. Uh, you know, even if they're jumping off the train at this point, they were driving it for a long time. Mm. Um, and I think that that introspection, I'm actually seeing a lot of that among the um, lesser known figures, whereas some of the more powerful national figures, um, with the exception of Beth Moore, I think, who's who's been much more introspective on this and self-critical, I think that there's more work to be done. Um, Who left in that the Southern respect. Baptists on an mm-hmm. official basis. And has acknowledged her own complicity in promoting some of the ideas that brought us to this point. And she's paid a cost for for calling him out when she has. Um, so that's one thing I try to do. I also, you know, talk with these folks about um, um, who they have um, excluded from their fellowship, to use the Christian word, from their company, who they have actively excluded, um, how they have drawn these lines around orthodoxy. And um, to think, you know, about um, particularly racial dynamics, issues of LGBTQ, and uh, and to think about what it looks like to make amends, and um, and then sometimes I, depending on who's talking to me, um, I ask, you know, uh, if I sense like there's a huge sense to uh, rush to kind of fix things. Uh, oh my gosh, what have we done? How can I fix it? And putting themselves right out in front, you know, sometimes I think some of these evangelical leaders maybe need to wrestle with. I mean, I'm super grateful for that instinct, that impulse, but is this yours to fix? Are, are, are you the leader here? I mean, by all means, use the power that you have, but re- to remind some of these folks who feel like they need to save Christianity because their corner of it is looking so awful right now, um, to remind them that, you know, if you are a Christian, uh, white evangelicalism isn't the only Christianity there is. And maybe your job is to 
go find some of those spaces where Christianity is less problematic, where it may be flourishing, um, and those may not be in your white middle-class suburbs. And then maybe your job right for a while is just to listen and to learn and maybe not get right out in front of the next, you know, big fix and, you know, start a podcast or something. Um, but, but it's hard. It's hard because there's a lot of, you know, you want to work with the goodwill that is there. You want to use the, you know, the um, uh, people who have authority in these spaces. But there is a lot of reckoning, I think, that has to be done. And I think that's going to take a, a lot of time and a lot of um humility. I have a couple more serious questions, but this one came to me at 2 a.m. and it sounded good and I'm reading it and I'm like, this is a (laughs) dumb question, but how come like the stereotypical evangelical, white evangelical Christianity that you're writing about focuses on this manly patriarchal uh, alpha male type, but also the stereotype applies to like hipster, skinny jean, quote unquote, effeminate pastors too. Are those two different things or are they converging on the same place? Because they kind of preach a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, I I wanted to have, originally when I proposed this book, I was going to have a chapter on alternate uh, evangelical (laughs) masculinities because there's a lot of them out there. They don't all fit into this. Uh, And, but but they do come down to a kind of power, right? So, uh, oh, kind of masculine power. What does that look like? And um, you can kind of see it morph and shift over time. Uh, In the the 1990s, you had this softer, gentler patriarchy with the Promise Keepers movement. That was actually a really interesting moment in evangelical history, post-Cold War, everything seemed up for grabs, and it seemed like we might be taking a a pretty different direction um, if you go back in time. That didn't happen. We see the backlash form, and then you have this more militant kind of masculinity, the Driscoll type in its extreme form. Um, The truth is the vast majority of people who were um, reading these books on rugged Christian manhood, um, you know, they're still wearing khakis and polo shirts in their men's group in their suburban churches. they might go out and try to, you know, do rock climbing on the weekend um, with their men's group. But, you know, otherwise, it, it's it's not that they're all living this life, but it is being held up as an ideal, an ideal of what the alpha male actually looks like. And many of these men know that they are not that alpha male. Um, but therefore, they give their loyalty or support to the men who are, like the ones who are brave enough, who are strong enough. So when you get to the hipster mega pastors, you know, um, it depends on on how much how successful they are. I mean, it becomes a kind of joke, but hey, a lot of these guys are overseeing these pretty big mega churches, millions of dollars of you know, annual budget, and and they're stars and they're celebrities, and so power can take different shapes. You get somebody like Donald Trump, right? I mean, he's not William Wallace in physical form. <laughs> um, he's it's a not, very nice you know, way of putting it. A lot of people are like, oh, come on, you know, no, Donald Trump is not. But but then let's talk about power. Let's talk about power. And and, and that can take different shapes. And power in terms of his, his business, quote unquote, success. Power in terms of his ruthlessness. In terms that he does not care, right? Civility, political correctness. Um, democratic norms, none of that matters. And there's something to be admired there. So really, it's a book about, it's a book about power. It's like Jesus and John Mulaney is the next chapter somehow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, One critic uh, that I saw, they 
said about your book that, oh, here's this historian at a premier Christian academic institution, but their their claim was you're painting lower or middle class white men whose children have diminishing prospects in the worst possible light, uh, as if, you know, you're unfairly picking on guys who are struggling as if they're they're the power brokers and not the victims of some other type of um, uh, circumstance. Oh, no, I would say this is largely a phenomenon of the the white middle class and upper middle class suburban, right? This is a fantasy. It's an ideal. Uh, but the, the shape that this fantasy takes ends up uh, really elevating um, an idealized version of white working class culture. Um, but it is that an idealized version. So, um, so there, uh, again, kind of survey data bears this out, and this is a fantasy. And the people who are producing and consuming this literature um, are, you know, these are, are guys in suburban churches, um, you know, in their book clubs and stuff. You have a, a I will say that, um, I don't know if it came out in that critique, um, but I think the most valid critique of my book is that I don't do enough of an economic analysis. Um, and there are, there are reasons that I dodged that and it, it's not because it, it wouldn't support the thesis actually as I was so up against word count and up against what I feared were the limits of my audience's attention because to do a really good economic um, analysis of this I'd have to spend a, a significant amount of time in the 1930s actually which mm-hmm. is before the book really picks up and I wasn't sure if I could trust my readers to stay with me it's a trade book um, to look at conservative Protestant opposition to the New Deal to New Deal politics um, that positions them in a particular way in the Cold War era, and that persists, you know, all the way up to today, this um, um, that we're seeing, you'd have to bring in prosperity gospel um, teachings and the embrace of that, uh, which means that, again, this is not purely a working class phenomenon. This prepare, prosperity gospel reaches across, all of which is to say um, there is a lot more to be said. That's a valid critique. I could have done a lot more. I couldn't fit it in in the time that I had to get it out before the election. But I really do hope to make up for that uh, in my next book, which really focuses on the economic aspect and, in fact, analyzes this white Christian women's culture in terms of neoliberalism and post-feminism. One last question for you. This is, again, uh, a different critic, by the way. Um, They said um, you assign too much power and too much blame to white evangelicals. I'm quoting here. In fact, by her account, evangelicals would love to be as powerful as she claims they are, The truth, however, is that the movement is run by aging white men whose time is mostly up. And my favorite part of that critique, uh, they added after that, they quoted Beth Moore or they mentioned Beth Moore and they said, this simple blonde Bible teacher, my tongue in cheek description, has nearly a million followers on Twitter. The divisions don't hold up any longer. You know, we are at an interesting moment. We are. Um, and I love this question because I have a lot of thoughts on it because <laughs> I've been, you know, not just historian, but now I'm I'm kind of a participant in this culture, which which I was not expecting, you know, uh, when when I was writing this book. Um, I move in these spaces. So um, first I will say that the the decline of um, you know, the old guard, we've been hearing that for at least 20 years now, probably more. 
um, and yet here we are. Um, and to understand that, yeah, I mean, James Dobson, is he still so relevant? I don't know. But then you look at these, these institutions, these organizations, these networks, and, um, and you see who really holds sway here. And, um, you've got prominent figures like Beth Moore. Yes, she has a million followers on Twitter. Um, how much power does she have to affect change? She has power to shape individuals. A significant amount, right? People who are like, what is going on? And then Beth, Beth Moore is, you know, she's saying things that are true. I'm not alone. Um, I mean, I even, I, I do not have a million followers. I have about 50,000, uh, right? Which is not insignificant. I didn't, I think I had like three before this book came out. So, right, people are finding me now. But somebody, somebody came up with a really interesting um, kind of analysis of my own power in, in these spaces. They're saying, you know, you have, you have a lot of power now, right? Compared to most. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, unlike somebody certainly like John Piper or anybody in the you know, Gospel Coalition, your followers are largely marginalized people in these mm. spaces, whereas they uh, have followers who are pastors who influence large numbers of people, right, in these spaces. And I think that's really, really important. We have to always bring a, a, an informed analysis of power. Now, the internet is absolutely changing things. Social media is changing things. Um, my book has traveled through these new networks, um, podcast networks, social media, and it's getting into the hands of the people who, who most need it and who never would have, you know, had access to this really, wouldn't have crossed their paths. So that is all real and true. It it is changing the power dynamics. And at the same time, I see a whole lot of change when we look at individuals walking away, challenging, standing up. When I look at institutions, nonprofits, Christian schools, Christian universities, mega churches, you name it, that's where you're going to see these individuals are being picked off. They are standing up, they are speaking against, they're, they're thinking in good faith, hey, let's let's look at the scriptures here. Let's talk about this. Let's change our curriculum. Let's address this from the pulpit. Let's do that. And one after another, what happens is conservative donors hold an incredible amount of power. Conservative constituents do. And I mean, I'm I'm I have so many stories coming my way. Local churches, Christian colleges, right? That that there are people who are trying to change, to reform, they are being picked off, or they're getting exhausted, burned out, and they realize they cannot change these power structures. And I'll say, I, 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 I do participate in this world a little bit. I live here in West Michigan. Um, I've been brought in in a couple of these uh, situations, like, oh, surely Kristen can, can make something happen here. Nope, nope, I fail. <laughs> just as, uh, as much as anybody, I just understand why. Uh, and, and what we're up against. I always find it interesting when they say uh, evangelicals would love to be as powerful as she claims they are, because it's like, who exactly do you want to trade places with? Because like, if you want to swap out the number of evangelical claiming politicians for the number of like atheist politicians, I'll gladly make that trade. I'm sure Jews and Muslims and everyone else would too. So uh, yeah, it's it's the people with the power complaining. They never have enough. Yeah. Um, The book is Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, The author is Christian Dumay. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for this conversation. It was great.